Let's pray real quick. Father, when I come here, it's, it's interesting as, I, as, these, as you've asked um, to prepare this. I'm amazed by the people that support what we do up here, the prayers, the thoughts, and the support as um, I'm humbled. Because many times as, we, as I go about trying to seek what you're asking, it feels like I'm doing it alone. And I am not doing this alone. And neither are any of us doing this alone, but we always feel that way. Um, I do want to lift up right now a brother and sister of mine, Ray and Misty Aguilar. Ray's mother may have had a stroke. And um, I just, as a church, pray for them. Um, pray for just healing if that's necessary or healing in the family if that's necessary. But we just want Ray and Misty and their family, and it's a family, to know we love them. We miss them when they're not here, but we understand. And um, they're special people that have a special ministry and a special purpose in life. And just lift that family up right now as they go through some times. We love you and thank you. Be with us in spirit here. Send your spirit on us as we talk about things that you want us to be. In your son's name, amen. Um, there we go. I'll go back to the first one, though. Hit the first one, because I won't be able to go back. There we go. We're going to talk about the differences between lighthouses and bomb shelters. Okay? I have this picture right here. On the left, we have what? That's a lighthouse. On the right, we have on the top definitely what looks like a bomb shelter. But then going through pictures of bomb shelters, I saw some elaborate, pretty crazy-looking bomb shelters, like the one on the right. That is a bomb shelter on the right that somebody did uh, with a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of resources, correct? So, lighthouse differences. What are... What's a lighthouse, guys? Anybody? Throw something at me. Illuminate. What? Yep. Guys, keeps the ships from hitting the rocks. I say this. Lighthouses are meant to be visible. They're meant to be seen. Right? Bomb shelters, however, are meant to be hidden. They're hiding, hidden away, locked away. Only those that know where they are can find them. Lighthouse was built to rescue people. In the middle of a storm, the lighthouse is supposed to perform. Correct? Correct. It's supposed to be what rescues people. A bomb shelter is built to get into before the storm even hits. And preserve, to protect you. Keep you safe. Lighthouses. Anybody in the area that sees it has the capability of using it. It's not an exclusive club. Whereas the bomb shelter can only be used by an exclusive few that A, know where it is, or tell others where it is. Lighthouses require upkeep. They require you to continually maintain them. In the, in the, in the prior days, much more so because it, the, what was the light in the lighthouse before we had electricity? It was, it was fire. 
provided by some kind of fuel that you had to constantly maintain in order to maintain the lighthouse. Today we have electricity and so forth, so we can we do that, but it still requires maintenance and someone to watch to make sure that it continues on because that lighthouse, when it's needed, cannot fail. Whereas a bomb shelter needs very little maintenance at all. Clean some cobwebs every other year, make sure some supplies are there, and you're okay. Go back to this. Lighthouses and bomb shelters. Guys, are there churches that are lighthouses, and are there churches that are bomb shelters? There you go. So a church that's a bomb shelter, what are some characteristics of a bomb shelter type church? One leader, cults. So, so many cults are, 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 have a bomb shelter type mentality of a charismatic leader that only that guy knows what's going on. Many times these bomb shelter type churches really have this exclusive belief that only... It, only they are going, the ones that are going to be saved, and everybody else, while they mean well, are not going to be saved. Some churches actually, uh, in some cults and some denominations, say that openly. Other churches and denominations actually say it kind of privately. They try to interact in the world a little bit, but if you really narrow them down to where it is, at the end of the day, they would really say, you know what, we're really the real true Christians and everybody else really isn't at this point. Okay? Um, but outside of even some denominations, even churches within our own denomination or our own kind of belief systems, many times a church can become a bomb shelter over time. I went to, uh, me and my wife went to a church in Indianapolis. It was called Third Christian Church. Why was it third Christian church of Indianapolis? And it was what? There was two before it. It was the third Christian church in Indianapolis. Third. It was actually a denomination called the Disciples of Christ. Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ. Um, and interesting, that sounds kind of fundamental, but actually that is a very liberal organization. It's actually very liberal in its theology uh, about what it believes about God. It's not a very conservative group. Um, didn't know that at the time, but that's beside the point. This third Christian church, the, the building itself was built in the late 60s, early 70s, and it was a massive building. It wasn't greatly elaborate. It had some elaborate structures to it. The sanctuary was quite big and, and, and built differently, but it had a massive number of classrooms after classroom after classroom off to the side and in the back, and it had places where there were trailers that were classrooms. And apparently in the, in the 60s and the 70s, the Bible studies and Sunday schools particularly that were going on in this church filled those classrooms. And they continued to have to build more and more and more. So this church certainly would have been seen as a lighthouse of the 60s and the 70s. But as time grew on, what happened to the church? It started to move away. People started to leave. It reduced down in his people. Only the old people that had been there for a while were left. So by the time me and my wife were, were brought into this church, and it was because the, the new pastor came on with his son, and we really liked them, and we wanted to support them, there were 75 members left of this massive 3,000-person church that had existed for many, many years. That church had become 
a bomb shelter. Because even as we came in, even as they asked us to come in, as we came in with new ideas and new things and ways to bring the light to the world, the congregation itself, the people that had been there for a long time, massively rejected it. Because they wanted their way. They wanted it to do, and the church died. That's a bomb shelter mentality. That happens inside the Southern Baptist churches in the, in the, in the, in the country, in the state, in this city. Probably within 10 miles of here, there's a couple of those. Bomb shelter churches basically encourage people to gather together with a very narrow mindset to protect themselves from anything that has to do with the world that's outside. Okay? What did Jesus ask us to be? You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Lighthouse. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Bomb shelter. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. That's in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus was given. There's a main part of a lot of his ministry in which he was speaking. We are called to be a lighthouse. Now, in that, there are forms of light in this world. One of those forms is the church globally. There is a global influence of Christians that has happened since the time of the disciples. Okay? Christianity has had an impact on the world. Would we all agree? Rome, the massive empire of Rome, was really brought down by Christians. The Colosseum. Stop being the Colosseum because Christians began to provide worth and that people had value and that you don't put people in an arena to entertain other people by harming and killing each other. And that influence, influence began to break apart this massive empire that was Rome. And all of a sudden, what was persecuting Christians in the first century and having nothing to and, and that the cross was a symbol of torture, by the 4th century, all of Rome was adorned, was, was adorned with crosses. And Christianity was a part of the empire. For good or for bad. There was good and bad both in, in, in what happened with that, this, and I'm not saying that, but the influence of Christianity on the world at that time brought down an empire. Let's talk about nationally as a, as a, as a country. Has the United States had an influence as a light into the world? Yes. No other country has sent and shipped more light, exported more light into the world than what the United States has done. Churches send missionaries out to the four corners of the earth to present the gospel, to share people the good news and the hope that is in Jesus. And we've done that very, very well. And we're still doing that. As much as we want to talk about how bad this country, and there are some ideas and things that are going on now that are not fun to deal with, we still are a net exporter of light to the world. And that's an amazing, amazing thing. Light in a city. 
my wife's from Long Island, New York. We would go back, we go back to New York often. One of the times I went back to New York, we were there for a week, and I didn't know it at the time, but when, we, when I came back, I got to Prescott, and I got back to work, and I'm like, man, there's a different feel in Prescott. Because when I was in New York, I felt dark. Darkness had taken over. Whether you were watching the news, or whether you were reading the newspaper, or whether you were out in the about in, in either New York City or out, in, out on Long Island, there was a feeling of darkness that was going on in this area, and that's been going on for quite some time in a lot of our major cities. Take away the influence of the church in these cities, and what do you end up with? You end up with darkness. When I came back to Prescott, there's a different feel in this town. There are different people. Now, we all have, so we have some different beliefs and different ways in which we go about worshiping and so forth. But as a general rule, there is a great light in this town that is very, very apparent. I can't tell you the number of people that come from California, buy cars from me. I have a sales manager of a car dealership. And they just talk about how different this place is from where they come from in California. Right? So as a city, we can be a light. As a congregation, are we a light as a church? This better be. And what about as an individual? Are you a light amongst the people that are around you? So I ask this question, how much perceived influence do we have over each of those? How much influence do I have over the church globally? <laughs> it would be hard to quantify. Church nationally? Eh, maybe a little bit more, but not much. Church in the city, now we're talking I have a little bit more influence over what's happening in this city. But the two places I have the most influence of the light that God has put in me comes where? Here and amongst the people that I'm with. That's the things that we can control. So as a congregation and as an individual, though, and this is where it breaks down, how do I have, how do I go and project that light into this world. What do I do? We talk about theoretical things up here all the time, but it's very difficult sometimes to get down to the nitty-gritty. What can we do? What do we do to be a light in the world, practically speaking? I want to begin that conversation by talking about Matthew 25, 14 through 30. I call it the investment. Who knows what this passage is or what this parable is? Anybody? The what? Silver? silver? What, what, what? This is not the sower. This is not the sower one. You know, but have we talked about... <laughs> See, Josh is over here going, hey, we talked about this the other day. Yes, we did. This is the parable where Jesus is describing the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is like a master who went away on a trip. And we're going to sum up here. We're not going to explain. We're going to sum up. You know, Princess Humperdinck is marrying Princess Buttercup in this left half an hour. I'm sorry. That's Princess Bride. Anyway. I had to get my movie reference in there just for Brandon. Okay. Master goes away and he has three servants. And he gives one servant five, and in multiple translation talks about different things. It says five talents in some sum. It says five bags of gold in some of the more modern, just to give us an idea of what he gave them. He gave one servant two, and he gave final servant one. And he goes away. Okay, for a, long, for a long period of time. And he comes back. 
And he gets to the first servant who he gave five bags. And that servant, he says, hey, how did it go? And the servant says, hey, Lord, you gave me these five. And you know what? I turned it into five more. And what does he say? Well done, good and faithful servant. You know, I've given you a little. I'm going to put you in charge of many. He gets to the guy that he gave two. The guy says, hey, you gave me two. I'm giving you two more. Well done, good and faithful servant. Put you in charge a little, I'm going to put you in charge of many. He gets to the guy with the one. What did the guy with the one do? He buried it. He said, Master, I knew you to be cruel, and you, 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 sow, you, you, you reap where you didn't sow. You're not, you weren't a good person with all of this. I knew you to be cruel, so I didn't want to take a chance with anything. And so what does he tell that servant? He says, get away from me. Out into the place of wailing and gnashing teeth. If you knew me to be so cruel, you should have at least put it in a bank in some place and gained at least interest on it. Okay? That's the investment. Now, some interesting things about that investment. The investment was never the servants to give in the begin with, right? That was never their possession. The master's money, the master's talents, the master's gifts. But they were put in charge of it. Master was the owner. And the returns on those were also not the servants. They were the master's. In that, if this is supposed to describe to us what we are, and we're supposed to be light, what is our greatest investment? Souls, people, anybody else? Relationships. Who was that? Thank you, Rick. Time is our most valuable and greatest investment. You can even say work, but work is your time. What are you investing your time into? If we're going to be light in this world, when God's given you the investment, what do you invest your time into? Because that's going to be what ends up becoming the reward that God produces. God is the one that gave us time. God's the one that's going to do something with your time. Two people, two, one person and one group of people that had something to do with time. Who's the guy on the, on the left? Anybody? Martin Luther. Martin Luther really came to understand the value of time, the value of what he did greatly. So much so that, that he would, uh, when he would go, before, before he started what we know as the Lutheran church, so to speak, he was a very devout Catholic. Very devout. So devout that when he would go to confession, he would hold that priest for six, seven, eight hours at a time until the priest finally said, no mas, I'm done. You've confessed everything you could possibly confess. You can confess no more. And yet Luther would come back the next day and continue to confess. He felt so wretched about the things that he did and how he spent his time 
that he would torture himself by laying in the middle of the floor of an open house in the middle of winter to punish himself for the things that he did. Now, was he investing in his time into something that he knew was probably something good? Yes. But it was, was it providing him anything? No. All he did was continue to feel the guilt and the shame of the way and the things that his human nature brought. So much so that eventually he came to find that faith in God was greater than all the guilt and all the shame in the world that he could heap upon himself. And he started the Reformation. Who's on the right? Pharisee. Okay? Pharisees looked at the world slightly different in how they spent their time. So, in that time, if we go to Luke 18, okay, Luke 18, Nine through fourteen. Luke eighteen, nine through fourteen. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. So the Pharisee stood up there and understood the value of his time, and he said, I'm going to give of my money. I'm going to fast. I'm going to do all the right religious deeds. And by the way, I'm not going to do the activities that would make me an adulterer, a murderer, a sinner. Some, some translations actually stick sinner in there. But the funny part about this Pharisee is this. What did Jesus tell us about us as murderers? You what? If you think about it, your heart betrays you. You're an adulterer if you look on another woman in a wrong way. So the reality was, this Pharisee's trusting in their deeds and their works investing their time into all of this, thinking that they're actually gaining him something, and puffed up in his pride in doing it. So much so that he says, look at me, look how great I am, and I'm better than that guy over there. Okay? Now, who knows what, what were tax collectors basically back in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the ancient times? How were tax collectors viewed? Hated. Basically, they were the mobsters of the time. They were extortioners. Rome said, give us, you're, as tax collector, you're allowed to go collect. You have to bring us this much money, but whatever you collect more than that is yours to keep. They became extortioners. They became the mob. Lucky Luciano and all of that. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. 
and one, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, interesting, who can actually read the person that they attributed this quote to up here? Manny Pacquiao. Who's Manny Pacquiao? He's a boxer. Funny, because the person that made the slide really didn't uh, understand a whole lot, because that wasn't Manny Pacquiao. That was Jesus. Now, good for Manny Pacquiao to actually know a, a quotation of Jesus, I'm sure, and I believe that he actually does have a faith. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled those who humble themselves will be exalted. In our quest to be the light, one of the first steps we've got to do is we've got to realize it's not our actions, it's not our deeds, it's not things that we deserve that's going to, that God's going to use. We need to begin by coming to God in a humble fashion and saying, God, you're God and I'm not. And better yet, every good and perfect gift comes from above, the Father of lights. Anything good that comes out of us has nothing to do with my time, my actions, the things I did. Nothing about me, only about God. If we're going to then spend our time on something, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. It starts to play a little bit in our time. What do we spend our time doing? Because the natural human reaction is to spend your time doing good works, good deeds, things that, things that, that this human side would say are, are good things to do. But all that does is end up puffing up our pride, making us into a false righteousness. That's thing that we're going to do. If we're going to look towards this, we need to say, okay, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does his righteousness entail? What's the greatest commandment? What is it? Love God and then love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. And the second is like it. Jesus, they actually asked Jesus for one, and Jesus gave him a twofer. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? He even went further. All the law and the prophets are based on those two principles. So God's righteousness, if we're going to seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness, should we not then seek the things that are the basis of that righteousness? Which is, love God, Love others. Love God and love others. So when we speak in condition of our most valuable resource, time, what should we be spending our time with? Time with God and time with others. This is not, I'm not bringing up massive, large concepts here, but we are putting something together here to challenge you in something that I struggle with probably greater than anybody that I know. That's just me. My time. Putting together what I did today was a struggle for my time. 
coming to see Josh, who I love seeing Josh on Thursday mornings. Okay? It's amazing when I get there. But guys, the inner battle that goes on in me to want to stay home, sleep, do nothing, is utterly amazing to me. Some of the greatest times that we have is when we come in here together on a 10.30 in the morning. But what are the biggest fights that you might have during the week all the way up until 10.15 when you walk out the door late to come here? We fight it constantly because our inner desires, our human desires, the fleshly desires, want and demand our time. But if we're going to be light, and it's not going to be of ourselves, then where we invest our time is what God's going to be able to use for it. Time with God, and then time with others. What does time with God look like? Study of of what? The Word, the Bible. Study of the Bible. What else? Prayer. Guys, studying the Bible and prayer. And a little later, we're going to talk about a way to study the Bible. We're going to talk about some things that, that, that we do here to help us with that. But time with God. Why do we need to spend time in his word, in the Bible? What does that do for us? It what? Breaks the influence of the world. God speaks to us in his word. It's his word. Jesus was called the word. So when he's speaking, he's speaking to us. We're listening to what God's saying when we come to his word. Many people study this not to get a message from God, but out of guilt. Now, I'm not saying you can't come to this because of guilt at some moments, because you said, hey, I'm going to do this. Guilt is a motivation to come back to this at moments that break our humanity and break our sinful nature. But as a, if all the time you only come to this out of guilt, you're going to have an issue with listening and hearing from what God has to say to you. What does prayer do at that point then? If this is communicating to you, what does prayer do? Back to him. Now you're speaking back to God. And it's actually organizing your thoughts in terms of who he is and what he is. At this moment, you are acknowledging that God is God and you are not. That's what this relationship is. Everything else in this world is designed to break this between you and God. And it does a darn good job of it. I could use stronger words there. Yes, ma'am. The Word is God's lighthouse to us. Now, here it becomes something that's very interesting. Jesus did not leave us with love God only, the vertical. He left us also with the same importance of love others, the horizontal. And I'd say, 
as we progress in our Christian faith, a lot of times we might get into understanding his word a little bit, praying, we might even get, and I'm one of the more undisciplined people on the planet. How I come up with, how I study for this is you guys would be just amazed at the moments and times in which I do this and I come up with it and I write something down because it's strange. Because I have a hard time in discipline in just sitting and doing one thing. But we can do that for a while, but if that's all we're doing, it eventually runs out. We eventually falter. So what other entity did God place in our lives to help boost that, encourage that? If we use Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, uh, exhort that, that's the big word there, is what? Other people. Other people will break your pride better than anything else that God can use. Because even in our study, we can study the word with diligent precision. And we can have massive praise. Our most heavenly God on heaven and earth, please. We can have these amazing times. But a lot of times, if that's all I'm doing, I end up in the same place I think I'm doing when I'm doing good works. Pride, look at me. I'm great. In fact, another, another thing when studying the Bible is studying the Bible for status. You want to be seen as someone who knows it. Hmm, look at me. The Pharisee. How great am I? I know the Bible. Back and forth, inside out, left and right. Yeah, great. I knew a guy. He was big into purchasing Bibles and old Bibles and replicas of old Bibles. He actually bought a car for me at my world. And he was talking about all this. And he brought some of them there. And they were amazing. It was neat to see some of the stuff he brought. You know, just some different things that, that were really interesting. When I began to talk about, okay, well, hey, where do you worship? What do you do? Oh, I don't worship with people. <laughs> so people have, you know, they're, they're just, they're, they harm me, they're wrong. I just do my own thing and I let, let it be at that point. And let me tell you something. His attitude towards other people was judgmental, condemning, and he was no light to the world, even though he had probably 500 Bibles in his house and could, could speak to you from one end to the other about it. Other people become the balance of what we do. Why do we come here? What is this? Is this a meeting of other people? This is. This is, this is a function of what we do with others. 10.30, Sunday morning, we're here, we're meeting together. But at some level, I have to ask, if all you do is walk in here, find a pew, sit down, listen to a good sermon, and then walk out of here, have you really spent time with other people? That's not really helpful at this cause, because you're, just, you're feeding one cause, time with God, and what you think is time with God, when God has designed and been for us to be with other people. So this group that we meet together, this thing we do, is much more about what goes on between 10.30 and 12 o'clock. It's more about what goes on all the way up to 10.30 and any time after 12 o'clock. In design of that, in design of that, there are things that we do here that, that trying to promote 
time with other people other than what happens between 10.30 and 12. There are many small groups that do meet. Tim and Jamie has a small group that meets at their house on a Monday night. Um, Linda, Linda's, Linda, Linda Kevin's not here today, but Linda has a Tuesday morning and a Tuesday evening. There's something she does to, uh, Monday night, Tuesday morning, where she, she's going through uh, the, the television show, The Chosen, which is amazing. Um, Wednesday morning has a women's Bible study. Thursday morning, my, bro, my brother Josh, and I bring him up because it's going to be part of something that I'm going to start. But Josh, um, he has an amazing gift. I wish it was a gift I had, but I don't, so I'm just going to glean off his gift, which is he's, he's got a passion for studying and writing commentary on the Bible. He's, he's, been, he's been holding a men's Bible study for many years, um, and the faithfulness by which he studies and prepares for that, whether it's two people showing up on a Thursday morning or 20 people showing up on a Thursday morning, has been absolutely astounding. If I showed you the notes and the things that he does on things like 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I think you did Exodus. You did Joshua. Huh? Revelation. 1st, 2nd Peter. He's got these commentaries that I believe really would beat any published commentaries that you'd ever see. Right now on Thursday mornings, he's doing a parallel Gospels chronologically. He's taking the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and going through it in a chronological order um, of how it is, and then get together for the, on, two, on Thursday mornings for two hours and discuss it. He shares his notes and stuff with us, and we have a great discussion. It's an amazing time. So Thursday mornings, if you can be there, great. I'm going to leap off of that because I want to use some of the tools that he's provided. Coming up on Thursday nights, every other Thursday night, and simply because I can't do it every week, I have to do it every two weeks because of my schedule. So that's what we're going to do. <laughs> But every other Thursday night here at 6.30 after band practice, we're going to get together and we're going to go through and we're going to talk about our time with God and share it with each other. How we're going to do it, I'm going to challenge you to do, and I don't know how in the world I'm going to pass this out, but I'm just going to start it here and maybe it makes its way back and take one and pass it around and get back through there. Take one and pass it around and get it back through there. Take one and pass it around and get it back through there and it might make it to the back. If it doesn't, we'll have extras up here and so forth. But to begin a time with God, a group called the Navigators, if you don't know them, they've been around for many, many years. The Navigators um, were large into my father's um, Christian walk. Many other people, they've discipled many people in terms of their Christian walk. And really it goes back to, I think, I think it was Princeton University in the early 1900s, they called it Remember the Morning Watch. It was just a challenge amongst several men to spend seven minutes every morning with God. Seven minutes. And not seven-minute abs for you movie buffs. Some people know that, some people don't. Okay. Seven minutes with God, and that's what this is. So one of the first things you would do in the morning is simply get up, pray for 30 seconds. God, show me, guide me. You're God, I'm not. This is not an elaborate prayer. This is not an elaborate thing, but it's setting your mind right, studying his word for four minutes, 
and then praying for the last portion of that. And it's actually got a way to structure your prayer. It's the act structure of prayer. Adoration, acknowledge God's God and you're not. Confession, confess the things that are in your heart that are sin. Thanksgiving, thank God for who he is. Guys, right now in that prayer, you've come to God in a humble fashion. This has not been about God, pray for me, pray for my health, pray for my kids. No, it starts out with you're God and I'm not. I'm a sinner that needs saved. And thank you for all the things that you've given me. And now in that frame, you come in supplication and and ask for the things that are there in your life. You want a time investment to be light. This is the start. Time with God. It's required. If you're going to be and have the things that God wants you to be. That's it. Can you give seven minutes? And by the way, will you be, even if you started a plan like this, will you be perfect at it? No. Lord, no. I won't be. I can guarantee I won't be. That's my humanity. That's our humanity at work. But it's a start. It's a place. With this, what I'm going to do on a Thursday morning, or Thursday night, excuse me, is we're going to talk briefly about some things and ways and tools in which to study the Bible. There's some amazing things out there that you may, may or may not know about in um, what, where you can get commentaries on the Bible, notes on the Bible, different things that you can look at to gather further understanding from it that's online, offline, et cetera, et cetera. And then ways in which you actually read the Bible. Understanding that it, what the difference between reading a letter that Paul wrote to a group of people and a psalm that was a song written by David at a moment of, of jubilation or a moment of despair. You see those things differently because of the, their context. So we're going to talk about context things. So part of that session on Thursdays will be context of what you're looking at and how you're doing it. Then we're going to have a discussion of what we studied over the last two weeks. So where I'm going to present after the first week Here's the passages that we need to look at for two weeks that if you use something like this, please do. It doesn't have to be seven minutes. It can be 30 minutes. This is just a structure. Right? But as you study, if we study in this group together, when we get together every two weeks, something amazing is going to happen. I'm not going to stand up here and talk at you about what it means. We are going to stand around and talk about what you've learned from it. And let me tell you something, and this is what I've seen in Josh's Bible study. When you get people who are humble before God and spend and invest some time in this together, you will see God and you will see this world in an amazingly different way because those other people bring something great to the table that you never saw. That's what I want out of the time. And then the last part of the session, I will share some nuggets. Josh throws in some absolutely amazing nuggets about these portions of Scripture. And when you get in there, I I guarantee there's just some mind-blowing moments because his mind works in a way that pieces some of the things together that you may not even have thought were there, and so we're going to share those. That's what I want. And Thursday nights, if there's two of us, if there's ten of us, if there's a hundred of us, I don't care. The idea is to meet from 6.30 to 8.00. If you're a part of another group, please stay with that other group. If you want to come to this time, you can. If you're not part of a group, I encourage you to be a part of it. 
Um, I ask this, that if you have kids, I want really, it's been burdened on my heart, that if you have kids, let me know so I can have somebody to watch the kids. That's one of the biggest challenges that somebody with kids face, is what to do with the kids when we want to meet together. Because the, the solutions are they either meet in the back room of somebody's house that you're not comfortable necessarily with them being in, um, or they're with you and they become a distraction for you, um, even though for the other people it may not be, but that's just what happens when you have kids. So I want to provide something for those with kids. And it's going to be every two weeks. It's not going to be every week. That's what we're going to do. We'll talk more about that later, but I wanted to get that in your hands. The idea behind it, though, is very, the concept is simple. Spend time with God during the week. That's your investment to be light. Your investment also, though, is spending time with others. Dry mouth and where's Ross? Where'd Ross go? You're up, bud. I don't know where I put this. If this is done correctly, in the right spirit, where God is God and you are not, the light that produced... Who's to be glorified in it? Our Father. He becomes glorified, not us. This does not require our efforts on a human level to make this happen. God simply asks us, humble yourself before me, put yourself in the proper places, and watch what I'm going to do with you. And I leave you with Proverbs 3, five and six, in this vein, in this effort. Trust in the Lord your God with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. It's simple, but it's hard. It is so much easier to live this life in religious servitude or in completely ignoring it altogether. This is hard because it requires you to give of yourself, to give of your time, and to give of your desires that are here. And trust me, you will not be perfect in this. But it is much more about what you do give than what you don't. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. And I just pray that as we go about this life, we will constantly battle either doing it on our own accord or not doing it at all. And I just pray for humility in our souls to understand that our investment in you always reaps a reward. And that reward is the treasures in heaven. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the people in it. They drive me. And I just want us to drive each other to be light individually 
in our congregation, in our community, that flows into the nation, and it ends up as light to the whole world. Thank you, and be with us as we continue on in your son's name. Amen.